0: and from listener donations at wjffradio.org. ...kind of an improbable story. NPR barely made it onto the air.
1: I thought we would never survive another week. It was just going to be beyond awful, and in fact, it was beyond awful. But the blueprint
0: for NPR was infused from the start... The chance to do something different. We were creating it from scratch. There was no template for it. I'm Audie Cornish, and this is 50 and Forward, an anniversary celebration of NPR. Today, we're going to explore how we got here.
2: I mean, every year we'd be adding someone here, adding someone there.
0: We'll do the math on some course corrections.
3: Our job is to go out and cover the world, not just the things that are of interest to the audience that we think we have. And we'll take a look at where we might go next.
4: I think if NPR wants to continue to not only survive, but thrive, we gotta make sure that we are telling all of America's story.
0: Coming up. 50 and forward, an anniversary celebration of NPR.
4: Live from NPR
5: News, I'm Jack Spear. The number of immigrants in detention has climbed sharply since the Biden administration took office. NPR's Joel Rose reports that's according to data released this week by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. ICE is
6: holding more than 26,000 immigrants in its network of privately run detention centers and county jails, up from fewer than 15,000 at the beginning of the year, when many of those facilities were partially empty because of the coronavirus pandemic. More than three quarters of those in detention have no criminal record. During the campaign, President Biden promised to end privately run prisons, including immigration detention centers, but that hasn't happened. The number of arrests made by ICE officers inside the U.S. has fallen, but the flow of migrants transferred from Border Patrol custody has grown as the administration tries to discourage people from crossing the southern border illegally. Joel Rose, NPR News.
5: With the current heat wave in the Northwest and ongoing heat in Western states has led to a plethora of recent wildfires, President Biden met today virtually with governors, cabinet officials, and private sector partners to try to come up with a plan. Biden telling Western governors, in many ways, the country's been playing catch-up, and he said that needs to change.
7: We know this uh, this is becoming a regular cycle, and we know it's getting worse. In fact, the threat of Western wildfires this year is as severe as it's ever been.
5: Biden's plan would ensure no one fighting wildfires is making less than $15 an hour, and the plan would add or convert to full-time nearly 1,000 firefighters across a host of agencies. Western states have already seen more than 2,300 square miles burned this year, ahead of the same time last year which saw near record levels of wildfire destruction. Former President Trump returned to the U.S.-Mexico border today at the invitation of Texas Governor Greg Abbott. From Texas Public Radio, Pablo de la Rosa reports Trump's visit comes as Abbott is facing a pushback in his own state.
4: Abbott plans to use state funds made available through his recent disaster declaration on illegal immigration to continue building the border wall and to recruit local law enforcement to detain migrants. But this week, all of the counties in the Rio Grande Valley along the Texas-Mexico border exited the declaration. At a town hall meeting organized by La Unión del Pueblo Entero in response to the Trump visit, the group, Danny Diaz praised local officials. The county judges listened to border residents. They looked at the facts and they unanimously agreed there is no border crisis. 28 counties in Texas have agreed to move forward with the governor's border wall plan. I'm Pablo de la Rosa in McAllen, Texas. The
5: House has launched a new investigation into the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Lawmakers approving a special committee today to probe the deadly attack as some of the U.S. Capitol police officers injured stood by. The vote on a resolution to form the new panel fell mostly along party lines. Stocks gained ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was up 210 points. This is NPR. The Yale School of Drama, one of the country's leading graduate programs for theater, announced today it will go tuition-free. That's after receiving a $150 million gift from entertainment executive David Geffen. Jeff London has more.
8: According to Yale University, Geffen's donation is the largest on record in the history of American theater, and makes the school the only institution of its kind to eliminate tuition for all degree and certificate students. Geffen, whose entertainment portfolio includes producing many Broadway shows, says, "Removing the tuition barrier will allow an even greater diversity of talented people to develop and hone their skills in front of, on, and behind Yale stages." Each year, about 200 students enroll in the program, which offers degrees in acting, design, directing, and dramatic criticism, among others. In recognition of the gift, the school's name will be changed to the David Geffen School of Drama at Yale University. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. A program that allowed wealthy foreign investors to obtain U.S.
5: residency appears to be coming to an end. Along the object of complaints, it amounts to putting American citizenship up for sale Congressional authorization of the program is set to expire with little prospect for renewal following the failure of a Senate measure that would have addressed concerns over inadequate regulation. A portion of the program had allowed money from wealthy overseas investors to be pulled into funds to finance big projects, often high-end real estate deals. Crude of futures prices ended the session up 49 cents a barrel to 73.47 a barrel. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News.
6: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Tire Rack, offering a selection of tires, shopping tools, and user reviews to help people find the right tires for their car and driving conditions. Learn more at TireRack.com and Americans for the
7: Arts. Others and... Uh... And, and there's a severe thunderstorm watch in effect till 10 p.m. tonight for Sullivan, Orange, and Ulster counties in New York, Pike, Wayne, Lackawanna, and Pennsylvania. The, the s- severe thunderstorm warnings that are a little more pressing, um, just popped up in the past hour. Uh, it does look like the radar showing that there's still this line of storms moving from the west to the east through northeast Pennsylvania, Sullivan County, and Delaware County areas. This is Radio Catskill. This is 50 and Forward, an anniversary celebration
0: of NPR. I'm Audie Cornish. With all that's going on today,
5: The U.S. COVID-19 death toll has now gone... It's been
0: a turbulent time, with a deadly pandemic, fights for racial justice, limbo. and a chaotic and sometimes violent political climate.
3: Pro-Trump riders have stormed the Capitol building.
0: And in the midst of all this we're marking a milestone.
9: Allow us to introduce ourselves.
0: This is NPR, National Public Radio. NPR is turning 50. How long is 50 years? Well, long enough to remove the seemingly outdated word radio from our name. This
2: is National this Public is Radio. This is NPR News. Long enough
0: to witness a dizzying parade of world-changing events and upstart technologies. Long enough to figure out when it's time to start doing things differently. Now that's us, on the very first day of our first show. It was May third, 1971, and outside our doors on the streets of Washington, D.C., one of the biggest anti-war protests in American history was taking place. We started by holding up our microphone to America. And we're still listening today. of the biggest protests of our times, bookending 50 years of NPR. Today, we have the story of a ragtag network born in the era of Vietnam and Watergate that came of age during the explosion of the 24-7 news cycle and we're going to explore how the news has changed.
7: First reports that President Nixon
2: the would space resign. Space shuttle
1: Challenger lifted As off. As of
2: today, the wall that bisects Berlin. The extent of the epidemic of Kaposi's sarcoma.
1: President
10: Clinton is vowing to finish Between his term. The hit the post
2: of Louisiana. It appears that a
11: plane has crashed into the upper floors of the World Trade Center. My
10: goodness, we're in the middle of an earthquake.
11: Powerful scene in top rear Square last night. Donald Trump was elected the 45th president. We'll
0: look at how our journalism has changed with our ever-growing team of Reporters,
7: producers, and hosts. I'm Sanford Unger. I'm Robert Conway. I'm Noah
0: Adams.
1: And I'm Linda Wertheimer. I'm
7: Robert Siegel. I'm Bob Atwood.
10: I'm Melissa Block.
3: I'm Renee Montaigne from NPR News. I'm
7: Ari Shapiro. I'm Scott Sonson.
2: And I'm Steve Ensky I'm David Green in Washington,
10: I'm D. Mary D. Louise Kelly. I'm Noelle King.
2: I'm Lulu Garcia Navarro.
3: I'm
0: Elsa Chen. I'm Rachel Martin. This is Kelly McEvers from NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. We'll hear our theme music, Grow Up. And as stories go, we think ours is a pretty good one. Now, if you want to understand the media world that NPR sprang out of in the late 1960s, you need to look at what was going on in television.
12: I invite each of you to sit down in front of your own television set when your station goes on the air and stay there for a day.
0: In this famous speech, Newton Minow, the head of the FCC, challenged American broadcasters to do better.
12: Keep your eyes glued to that set until the station signs off. I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland.
0: A vast wasteland?
12: Blood and thunder,
0: mayhem, and
12: endlessly commercials. Brilliant brighter colors, the brightest you can
9: get. And most of all, boredom.
0: It was becoming clear that the public wasn't getting the benefit from the airwaves that it owned. And so in 1967, President Lyndon B. Johnson formalized an alternative. It was called the The Corporation Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
9: Broadcasting. This corporation will assist stations and producers who aim for the best. We in America have an appetite for excellence, too. And while we work every day to produce new goods and to create new wealth, we want most of all to enrich man's spirit. And that is the purpose of this act.
0: And the bill was originally named the Public Television Act. And its original purpose was to fix TV's problems. Radio wasn't even on the docket. In fact, the words and radio were slipped in at the last minute. Longtime NPR host Robert Siegel described it this way.
2: We were also working in a medium that had been declared dead uh, for the most part. So, you know, we were this not very high profile medium with a pretty small audience So, yes, it gave us uh, a, a pretty big free space to grow up on the air.
0: From what you know of that period, was radio dead? Yes, it was dead from a news point of view. That's Brooke Gladstone, host of On the Media.
12: FM had killed AM radio, certainly, and FM radio was principally music. NPR was able to walk into an open field and start playing. That was... One of the reasons it was able to set the rules of the game, the sound of the air.
2: The period when National Public Radio and and All Things Considered, uh, when they were conceived, was a time when there was a tremendous amount of change going on in American journalism. uh, In the name, I would say, of of authenticity, of let's not be so uh, uptight and stylized about how we tell people what the news is. All Things Considered an NPR in, in the early 70s are part of that. It was a time of great creativity and great, great ferment. And I think that um, that spirit can be read in, in the founding principles of what uh, our first big program, All Things Considered, was going to do. It was going to be different, like so many new and different things that were happening in news media at that time.
11: My name is Jack Mitchell, and I was the first person on the job at NPR.
0: Jack Mitchell and NPR's newly formed Board of Directors were trying to figure out what to do with this
11: fledgling network. The Corporation for Public Broadcasting had to do something in radio because the law said they had to. NPR, at that point, was just an idea. I remember going out to the People's Drugstore and buying a Wallen-Sack tape recorder as our first piece of equipment because we needed something to listen to tapes on when people send in auditions. You know, it was just so so loose and so informal, which, granted, it couldn't last that way forever. And you could make it almost whatever you wanted. There were all kinds of possibilities. I mean, you hadn't failed yet. Uh, nothing had gone wrong yet. And there was no, no structure whatsoever.
0: While NPR may have lacked structure at the time, around the country, there were hundreds of educational radio stations, some of which had been up and running for years. This
5: is public radio for Kansas. KSAC, Manhattan Kansas. To FM, Columbus, Ohio.
2: This is WOI-FM, Ames dialed 90.1. The thing
0: is, most stations couldn't hear what was happening in other cities. And to share programs, they had to send clunky reels of audio tape through the mail. One of NPR's founding mothers, Susan Stamberg, remembers it this way.
12: I had a nice tape in Washington. I sent it to Boston to that station. So two days later, the post office was very efficient then. They would get the tape, maybe put it right on the air. But the dream was always talk to one another today about what was happening today, because you couldn't do news that mailing way. And the Public Broadcasting Act of 1967
0: made that possible, made the Today Speaking possible the Today Speaking, the ability to broadcast news and information to stations across the country. And so one man set out to put into words how NPR would make that happen.
9: I remember maybe at the first program staff meeting, I said, we have a blank canvas here, and there'll be thousands of of brushstrokes on this. But the very first brushstrokes that we put on this are very important, because that will set a tone and value.
0: This is Bill Seemering. He started out as a station manager in Buffalo, New York, and would later become NPR's first director of programming.
9: In writing the mission statement, I was trying to be both aspirational and offer some core values, I think, and, and to reflect the, what was going on in, in American society at that time. So I, I wrote in the first paragraph, National Public Radio will serve the individual. It will promote personal growth. It will regard individual differences with respect and joy rather than derision and hate.
0: Now that mission statement has worked its way into our DNA. Even today, some staffers can recite parts of it, and a newer version is displayed in large letters on the wall of our lobby.
9: I think I did offer some core values with a mission statement that people see is more relevant now than when I wrote it in 1970. So I think I think that may be one of the more valuable things I contributed. I think in retrospect that I one of my skills, I think, was in hiring good people.
1: And who were some of those good people? I'm Linda Wertheimer. I went to work for NPR in 1970. The first real job that I did was direct all things considered which was the worst job i've ever had at npr i mean the worst linda had a feeling that she was walking into an unconventional workplace i didn't realize when i sat down with bill simmering that he was basically the inventor of uh, everything that we would do for the next you know several decades he kept asking me questions that didn't make any sense to me and he was just kind of lounging and back in his chair Talking about how he wanted it to be different from everything else, and he didn't like the idea of radio voices. And I said, "But Edward R. Murrow. He said, "Not Edward Armero. We're not on the. Ed- We're not doing Edward R. Murrow. And I'm thinking, "What? What are we doing?" <laughs> and I, I really didn't understand it, but it was very clear to me once I got on board what he wanted.
11: He wanted diversity and authenticity. Again, Jack Mitchell. He did not want professionalism, which uh, rubbed many people the wrong way. And he wanted women to be as many women as there were men. He wanted a significant role for minorities, regionalism, that it was going to be a group of people who represented the intended audience, which was everybody and that they would express themselves and their interests and their values uh, in what they chose to put on the air, and that this would reflect the entire country.
1: Bill Seamring really, really wanted for there to be a, um, a strong minority presence. We have not exactly won that fight that Bill Seamring wanted to. We have not turned this network into a place that sounds like america really
0: realizing simmering's vision of a diverse npr well that's the work that continues today but on may 3rd 1971 the priority was to launch the first program all things considered
12: the day of the very first broadcast we were all wired susan stanberg we were so excited everybody couldn't wait for it, were terrified of it, were as enthusiastic as we could be. The handful of reporters, five as well, massive anti-Vietnam War protests.
1: There was so much tear gas in the air that when I came to work on the bus, I was, I, you know, I was just gagging the entire time. And then we get there and we don't know where anybody is. Linda had good reason to wonder. It was up to her to get the broadcast on the air. And of course, those were the days before cell phones and somebody would have to like run into a restaurant and call the home base and say, I've got this and I've got that and I'm coming in or or not call, you know, just leave us wondering if they lived.
12: They came racing in with teeny little reels and uh, that they had to put on bigger reels in order to deal with them and work with them. They sat down and they began slashing at it with, with the razor blades and the sticky tape, racing it into the control room, throwing it at the at the uh, engineers to rack up
1: on, on the playback uh, machines. We did not know when the first piece was going to be ready. So Connolly brings us onto the air.
7: From National Public Radio in Washington, I'm Robert Connolly with All Things Considered.
1: He says a few things that he had planned to say, and we still don't have anything. So then he starts to talk.
7: Uh, the day started out almost before dawn. And when now, Robert
1: Conley was, he had a beautiful voice. Now, He'd been at the New York Times. He was a fi- kind of very dumb. fine writer, but he was just improvising.
13: Cars, they he improvised his way into the, street, way cans, into the first piece.
1: Finally, you know, I'm saying to him,
13: we got it, we got it, we got it.
1: And he calls for it to be played, and we started playing it.
7: Thousands of young people came to Washington, willing to risk being arrested in order to end the war. They went into the streets this morning to stop the government from functioning. And,
12: and I, I remember, remember sitting again on the floor because we still didn't have furniture. Only a month had gone by, uh, sitting on the floor of the control room then. When, while Linda Wertheimer directed and listening to what was coming out of the radio. Today, and it was something, it was sounds, and a kind of reporting I had never heard.
7: For these young Americans, today was a major test of their commitment to the ethical code of the young and the angry. It was their freedom ride, their Selma march, their May Day.
12: The star of it was a guy named Jeff Kamen, who was a guerrilla radio reporter. I mean he was just a wild man, none of that stiff formality out of Jeff. And he'd had a lot of experience at different in different radio places.
6: A not a so
12: he came back with wild tape, just capturing the guts of that day, the rage that was on the street, the reactions of the cops, and the famous piece of tape, which all of us who were there at the beginning, he brought back. And it was Cayman <laughs> Going up to a cop and saying, excuse me, officer, but is that a technique? You are riding your motorcycle directly into the crowd of protesters.
7: came National Public Radio. Is that a technique where the men actually try to drive the bikes into the demonstrators? No, it's no technique. We're trying to go down the road and the people get in front of What are you going to do? You don't stop on a dime.
1: We didn't have all of it. So some more would come in and we'd put that on. Some more would come in. We had no idea how long it was. We had no idea what was coming next. It was just, I mean, at the end of it, I was, I was ragged as I could be and trying not to have hysterics because it was so awful. But the radio program was good. And I, even in the throes of my upset, I understood that it was beautiful and that it was wonderful stuff and that he was amazing to be able to do it.
12: So this was like a, the glory moment it was it was a jewel and it was a signal how different we were going to be because you weren't hearing you certainly weren't hearing
1: anything like that anywhere else on radio and very rarely on television when that program was over i was as i remember i was in tears because i had just thought i thought we were not going to live through it but we did and then it occurred to me that we had to do it again the following day and every day after that and I didn't, I had no idea how we would do that. I could not imagine how we would do that. But we were so lucky that in that first day, we had this huge news story. And none of the pieces that we had planned, none of them had been used. So we actually did have enough material to do the next day's show. But then what were we gonna do on day three? I had no idea.
0: Coming up, what happens after day three? You're listening to 50 and Forward, an anniversary celebration of NPR. I'm Audie Cornish.
5: Poetry set to music. Next time on the Wagalooda Munkers with me, Graham Rice, here on WJFF Radio Catskill. We continue to showcase poetry set to music and this week the Irish poet W.B. Yeats. Join me, please, on Sunday afternoon at three.
1: I'm Maria Hinojosa, this week on Latino USA. After Hurricane Maria, an eccentric community of cryptocurrency investors arrives in Puerto Rico with promises to change everything.
12: This is a decentralized movement. I'm not aware of anyone building any gated community. I
6: think they're on
1: one. But what do Puerto Ricans think about that? That's this week on Latino USA.
0: Friday afternoon at 2 on Radio Catskill. Welcome back to 50 and Forward, an anniversary celebration of NPR. I'm your host, Audie Cornish. Few things represent NPR's growth more than our building, our headquarters in Washington, DC. Now it's seven stories high, almost a city block long, and the day's headlines scroll across the building on a giant black news ticker. You can see them from across town. And when you walk in, The lobby is this sleek, cavernous space, and you'll notice right away that there's a timeline of our history, how the network grew from a staff of just 65 people, to what is now a thriving news network, with more than a thousand employees around the country and the world. Radio is the medium that launched us, and to this day, our success still comes back to the singular human voice in your ear. So, it's fitting that when you visit the newsroom, a very familiar voice escorts you upstairs. Going up. That's Susan Stamberg. She helped shape the sound of our network, and she became the first woman to anchor a national nightly news program. From National Public Radio
12: in Washington, I'm Susan Stamberg with All Things Considered. When I went on, there were no role models. There were no women doing this. All the were were men, so I started lowering my voice and talking like this. And that really wasn't washing very well, and I couldn't keep it up for an hour and a half, which was as long as the program was.
0: That's Susan recalling her early days as a host, a year after she was hired by NPR's first program director, Bill Simmering. And Bill said
12: just the two most important words almost, apart from I do from my husband. He said, be yourself. And that was like such a gift. I didn't have to be that man-sounding voice. I could just speak as I spoke in real life, just like this. It was the voice he heard in his head, and he found it in
0: me. But not everyone embraced that voice right away.
11: Here was somebody whose name was Stanberg. She had an obvious New York accent, made no bones about it. Jack Mitchell remembers. That did not play well with certain board members in the Midwest who felt she was too New York. And the president of NPR asked that I not put her in there because of the complaints from managers. Uh, We did it anyway, and he was very supportive afterwards.
9: Susan, I felt, had exactly the sound that I wanted for NPR. Bill Seemering, the man who hired her. Curious, authentic, rich tone color. We've been looking into the Watergate story again tonight. And just this kind of insatiable curiosity that kind of bubbles over. And she can modulate her voice for serious or for fun things.
0: Including a memorable experiment on air to see if chewing wintergreen lifesavers made a spark in the dark. I saw it! I saw it!
12: What did you see? (laughs) I
0: saw a flash
12: of kind of greenish light, just for a fraction of a second.
9: So I really still believe that she had the best voice. If there would be a voice for what NPR is, I think she had that
0: hers wasn't the only voice to define the NPR sound.
1: Six weeks after Three Mile Island, Pennsylvania is trying to assess... Cokie the Roberts
0: would become a legendary congressional and political reporter. In
8: an affidavit filed with the Senate Judiciary Committee, law professor Anita
1: Hill said she had much in Nina common...
0: Nina pretty much defines our Supreme Court, court coverage.
1: We started from scratch, paid very low salaries, and hired a lot of women because they were willing to work for that price. And again,
0: Linda Wertheimer, she became a longtime host of All Things Considered. Nina, Linda, Cokie, and Susan, a roster of female talent often referred
1: to affectionately as the founding mothers. I just can't tell you how extraordinary it was. I mean, when I was, you know, when I was a teenager and I imagined being a secretary to some important newsman, I never thought that I would be able to do the work.
0: A lot has changed since the early days of the Founding Mothers, and you can feel it when you walk into the newsroom. When we're not in a pandemic, the building hums with activity. Reporters recording interviews, producers checking facts and timing stories. There are digital clocks everywhere, and usually someone running a last-minute script into a studio. When you see it, it's hard to imagine that NPR launched all those years ago in 1971 with just one daily news program run by a small group of staffers in a dingy, smoke-filled newsroom.
6: When I first came to NPR, first of all, I had never heard NPR on the radio.
0: That unmistakable voice is, of course, Ira Glass. He started at NPR in 1978. Here is how he remembers the network in the early days.
6: NPR at the time was two floors of a building on M Street in Washington, and there were three studios, and it was reel-to-reel tape. And the, I'm going to say this, and it doesn't sound like it's true, but it's totally true. NPR didn't get a satellite till 1980. And so the way that you would hear all things considered if you were in Kansas or California was through a phone line, and what it sounded like was...
9: Sounded like this on the old interconnected system.
6: It sounded like somebody in Washington was listening to All Things Considered on the radio and they were holding their phone up to the radio. Listen carefully.
0: You're about to hear how NPR's sound changed with the addition of satellite distribution. But
7: now, they sound like this.
0: And the arrival of the satellite coincided with the launch of Morning Edition. Morning Edition debuted in 1979, but the show was almost canceled before it even started.
11: They did this pilot, uh, only the stations heard it. It was closed circuit and it was awful. It was absolutely a disaster.
0: That's Bob Edwards, former host of Morning Edition.
11: It was uh, very chatty. It was like bad small market television. And a lot of member stations heard the pilot and they were a part of that. There were many pilots, they were all pretty bad
0: and that's producer jay kernis he helped morning edition get off the ground
7: this is bob edwards i'll be away from all things considered for a while instead i'll be with you each morning for national public radio's new morning edition
0: a week later bob edwards took leave from all things considered and morning edition went on the air
7: Good morning. Today is Guy Fawkes Day. Guy's plot to blow up Parliament was discovered on this day in 1605. Today is the beginning of National Split Pea Soup Week, and it's the debut of this program. I'm Bob Edwards.
0: And that first show was well-received, but still needed to prove itself, especially with NPR's staff.
1: They told us that we really wouldn't be doing very much for it at all, that we'd be writing a news spot here or there. They lied the
0: voice of Koki Roberts. She was with the program until her death in September 2019. Here she is in a 1989 interview, voicing concerns of staff that they'd be working twice as hard for the same pay.
1: They knew they'd have us over a barrel in the end because they had all of the statistics that showed them that morning is when a lot of people like to listen to the radio. And they knew that all of us were egomaniacal enough so that once we found out that everybody was listening, we'd beg to be on that program. And right they were.
0: Morning Edition built its audience and NPR continued to expand. 1979, the network opened its first foreign bureau, sending Robert Siegel to London. And slowly, NPR was able to hire new correspondents and freelancers stationed around the globe.
2: We'd contracted with someone in South Africa. We'd contracted with a, a woman in Rome, whom you may have heard of.
8: For National Public Radio, this is Sylvia Paggioli in Rome.
2: We did it incrementally. I mean, every year we'd be, we'd be adding someone here, adding someone there. And I remember on 9-11 being in New York and learning, that week at least, that we by that time had more staff foreign correspondents, or at least in more places around the world, than the big three television networks did.
0: Now NPR has 17 official foreign bureaus and numerous stringers providing coverage
2: from around the world. I mean, when when I first came, we were a little... A little spice in the in the public radio system. Ten years later, fifteen years later, we are an institution, we become in some regards a cliche, uh, we're the subject of jokes.
3: Hello, I'm Margaret Joe McCullen, and I'm Terry Rialto, and you're listening to the Delicious Dish on
0: National Public, public Radio. <laughs> this sketch appeared on Saturday Night Live in 1998.
14: Well, Terry, I really got greedy this year. I'm asking Chris Kringle for a wooden bowl.
0: Okay, so NPR had clearly button. become a household name. Our reputation was due as much to our news coverage as to our growing array of programs.
2: Bill, what's Carrie's topic? You're busted, Buster. Nobody wants to get caught red-handed, unless, of course, you're one of the original cave painters of Lascaux. That is the most NPR joke ever told <laughs>
8: don't, don't tell me where your car is but does it happen to be in the vicinity of like a bulldozer <laughs> have they just bulldoze a long ramp into the ground <laughs>
12: Drive,
8: it in drive this.
12: don't use the
3: brakes just
12: let it coast in hi i'm marion and my guest today is shirley horn she's a truly inspirational singer and pianist whose sensitivity and romanticism
1: Well, I'm really glad we got the chance to speak, because when I heard you had a book coming out, I thought, what a good excuse
10: (laughs) (laughs) to call up Maurice Sendak and have a chat.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's what we always do, isn't it? Yeah. Thank God we're still around to do it. Yes. And uh, almost certainly I'll go before you go, (laughs) so I won't have to miss you.
1: Oh, God, what a... (laughs)
2: And and I don't know whether I'll do another book or not. I might. Doesn't matter. I'm a
7: happy old man.
0: Now, NPR shows begat future shows. Reporters, hosts and producers all built on what was created by those who came before. I mean, that was my experience. I learned a lot from a former host of All Things Considered, Michelle Norris. Michelle hosted All Things Considered for nearly a decade. I asked her for her first impression of the network.
3: By the time I arrived, NPR was viewed as the gold standard in journalism. Their their foreign coverage, political coverage, and the pristine sound, it was held in such high regard. The thing that always surprised me is that inside the building, I'm not sure that people always recognize that. It still had sort of a college radio feel, and, and yet NPR was running with or leading the pack.
0: And we talked about how NPR has had to reckon with the many ways it still needs to change. There was a time where I feel like as a young journalist of color, as you were coming up, um, you were sort of led to believe that you shouldn't be quote unquote pigeonholed in stories about race and that you, you had to do this kind of dance around the things you might be interested in or not because of how it would be perceived. How do you think that changed Uh, as you were coming up?
3: I will admit that for a time as a journalist, I did not want to cover the race beat. As a person of color, I always um, covered matters of race perhaps more than my white colleagues did, uh, because that's what happens in a newsroom. My view of my role as someone who would elevate conversations about race, not I didn't say racism, conversations about race, changed when I became a host. I felt a greater responsibility to elevate and center those conversations and those
4: voices. Now we didn't get it. Now I'm angry about it. I'd see that happen. So
7: those are some of the fears on voters' minds, and here's one more. It's a grim fear that's been whispered since Obama became a serious contender for the White House.
0: Leading up to the presidential election in 2008, Michelle teamed up with Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep for a series of trips to York, Pennsylvania where they listened to voters and held frank and sometimes challenging conversations about race. For the things that have been
12: said at those rallies, this is though they want to bring out the skinheads, the KKKs, so they can kill this man. That's my fear. That's my fear. That should be your fear.
7: But no matter what happens on November fourth, many in this room are concerned about what happens November fifth.
3: And we'll return to York soon after the election for another chat about the outcome of it. The- I think there was a false perception that NPR had a Chardonnay drinking, Volvo driving, Birkenstock walking audience, you know, and our audience was much more diverse than that. I knew that when I went out in the world. I knew that from the listeners that I heard from. Our job is to hold a mirror up to the world. Our job is to go out and cover the world, not just the things that are of interest to the audience that we think we have. I'm no longer at public radio, but I'm a listener. And I think there is a clear understanding that in order to survive in, you know, a multi-ethnic, multi-racial society, that you have to cast your reporting lens in lots of different directions to serve lots of different audiences all at the same time.
0: I have to say that in terms of being a host at NPR, it's such a small host. And I always appreciated the way that you, um, I don't know, for lack of a better term, watched out for me because you didn't have to. Thank
3: you. I appreciate that. The job that you hold is the hardest job I've ever had. And so To have that kind of support system where you can reach sideways, you can reach forward, you can reach backward, and know that people have your back is is really important. It's, It's the key to survival. It's the key to thriving.
0: So how does NPR survive or thrive in the next 50 years? Coming up, we'll find out. You're listening to 50 and Forward, an anniversary celebration of NPR. I'm Audie Cornish.
10: During a Folk Plus hour, you might hear a new release by Loudon Wainwright or Judy Collins. But what I love about the show, after doing it all these decades, is that I hope to bring you that name you've never heard before and make it your next favorite artist to track down. Hope you'll join me on the next Folk Plus. They air Sundays at 4, here on WJFF.
1: WJFF is your community radio station in whatever community you happen to be. Thanks to the WJFF mobile app. Available for your Apple or Android device, the WJFF app lets you hear your favorite Catskill station anywhere in the world, from Monticello to Monte Carlo, from Homesdale to Honolulu, or just from your doorstep to downtown. Get the WJFF app from Google Play or the Apple App Store.
0: Welcome back to 50 and Forward, an anniversary celebration of NPR. I'm your host, Audie Cornish. So remember the blank canvas?
11: We have a blank canvas here. There are all kinds of possibilities. If you hadn't failed yet, nothing had gone wrong yet.
0: Two of NPR's first employees, Jack Mitchell and Bill Seemering, considering the promise of our brand new radio network in 1971. Fifty years later, we fill a digital space that goes beyond the wildest dreams of our founders.
10: I've never thought of it as something that was exclusively radio. It's about creating experiences that will enhance people's lives.
0: Anya Grundman, NPR's Senior
10: Vice President of Programming. If you think about NPR as only a service on one platform, then that really limits what you can do and how you can serve audiences. Serving
0: you on every platform imaginable. Every week, 60 million people consume some form of NPR across a full range of experiences, including radio, smart speakers, NPR.org, video streaming, live events, mobile apps, and yeah, podcasts. NPR has been one of the top publishers in the U.S. since podcasting began. In fact, in January of 2000, NPR created an online show, and that didn't exist on the radio at all. It was called All Songs Considered. It was our first podcast before the term even existed. Now NPR publishes more than a dozen of them every week and partners with stations and independent producers as well. We're always thinking about those stories that matter and how to tell them.
10: I'm personally interested in immigration stories. My father is an immigrant from Iran and stories of Latino identity. My mom is a migrant from Puerto Rico.
0: Shireen Marisol Maragi, a co-host of the NPR podcast Code Switch.
10: Code Switch is a team of journalists that talks all about race and identity in the United States. The story that I am the most proud of telling is a story that went beyond a stat, a stat that is used over and over again, which is that, you know, 16 million people live in a household where one or more of the people in that household is undocumented. And in the case of the family that I profiled, I talked to three siblings one who was a citizen, one who was completely undocumented, and one who had DACA about what it was like to live together and know that their futures looked very different. They shared with me things that they hadn't even told each other. Me and my sisters are actually talking about it, how we don't have a plan if we're deported. We've been in this country long, like so long that we feel like nothing's going to happen to us because like it's just, it hasn't happened before. And it was very psychologically challenging for all of them to to do this. And I think that that's what we do so well at Code Switch is we, we will take a faceless statistic and we will make it real and human for our listeners.
0: Last year, Code Switch was named Apple Podcast's first ever show of the year in the U.S. Another NPR innovation that surprised even the people who invented it was the Tiny Desk concert.
7: I go to a music festival every year. It's called South by Southwest, and I've discovered lots and lots of talent there. Bob
0: Boylan of NPR Music.
7: I went with an NPR Music uh, teammate, Stephen Thompson. Uh, we went to see an artist named Laura Gibson.
9: When my eyes surveyed. And
7: uh, we couldn't really hear her. She came off stage. We introduced ourselves to Laura. And Stephen jokingly said to her, We couldn't hear you. You ought to just come play a private concert in our office. And. We both laughed, all three of us laughed, and before we knew it, three weeks later, there she was, she was, uh, she came to NPR, she was on tour with the Decembrists at the time, and uh, I put her behind my desk uh, with a microphone, a couple of cameras, and um, took it home and edited it, put it up online, and it was the beginning.
0: No one at NPR Music imagined that this chance meeting would, in time, produce the phenomenon known as the Tiny Desk, a video series that features musicians performing short 15-minute concerts. And it would become NPR's biggest digital program.
8: How's everybody doing? That's pretty good sizable applause there. That was pretty good. Um, thank you, everybody, for coming out again. Um, this is weird as hell for me. Uh, <laughs> Never done anything like this. Uh, didn't think you guys were going to be here, but I guess we're doing this. So, uh.
0: This is T-Pain at the tiny desk, playing for the first time in public without auto-tune.
8: Oh, oh no, 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 oh, oh. Baby girl, what's your name? Let me talk to you, let me buy you a drink and an tea pain, you know me,
0: convenient. And this concert went viral. Within a few days, seven million people had watched it. And soon the Tiny Desk series was featuring a wide range of musical genres on a regular basis, especially hip hop and R&B.
8: How we feeling at this uh, tiny ass desk?
0: This is the tiny desk that helped put Lizzo on the map.
8: I'm feeling pretty good too. Hmm. I've been wanting to do this for a long time <laughs> So I think I'll do it today <laughs> Can I get an amen? amen? This tiny ass death I'm crying Cause I love
0: Now, last year, the Tiny Desk Series had nearly half a billion views on YouTube. The explosion of creativity, especially in storytelling, well, a lot of it shares our DNA. Well,
6: from wbez Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, amateurs, the fact. That they are not professionals. That Remember, Ira
0: Glass started at NPR as an intern. And 17 years later, after learning the ropes as a producer, reporter, and sometimes host, he came up with the idea for a show that would feature a new kind of storytelling. Naturally, he turned to NPR to see if they would distribute it.
6: NPR just did not want to pick up the show. Just the management, they just didn't like it. They just didn't get what it was. They didn't see, like, they didn't get like that even that it was journalism in a way. Like, it just was not, it was just not to the taste of the managers at the time.
0: Is what your takeaway for NPR on that effectively missed opportunity, with your show at least?
6: I guess. Like, our show would have been the same with the same audience, whether it had NPR's name on it or not. So in the end, I feel like that's one of those things which doesn't matter at all. We were on all the same stations, we reached all the same audience.
0: This American life took off in a spectacular fashion. It remains one of the most popular shows and podcasts today. And it has what could be described as a public radio style, conversational, low key, intimate. There are things
6: that when I went off to do my own show that were very different than than I would do as a reporter or occasional fill-in host on, on All Things Considered or Talk of the Nation or something. And, and my, my problem was, when I would try to do it, what I sounded like was somebody trying to sound like an NPR reporter and mostly failing. Like, if anything, like when we started This American Life, the way I sounded on the air to, to a lot of program directors around the public radio system, it, it was not seen as an asset. Like, I remember, uh, you know, we would try to talk stations into picking up our show. And the program directors were like, well, heard you know, like I've heard him on like NPR and he's a good reporter and all, but are you gonna get a real host? Like, are you gonna get like, you know, and by that they meant somebody who like spoke with more authority, but- um, uh,
0: There is some irony though, that um, given the, the spread of This American Life, but also the, what I would call all the seedlings from it, whether it's Planet Money or, or Invisibilia or all mm-hmm. this kind of programming didn't go away just because NPR didn't embrace it at first. <laughs>
6: that's that 's correct like like one of the things about um about about public radio in the United states that's different than other countries is that there 's no big boss at the top who decides what all the stations should run and 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 just like there 's a radical decentralization to public broadcasting, and that has made for a lot more creativity and openness than would otherwise happen
14: I think one of the best parts of public radio it's secret. Sauce, if you will, is
0: its member station network. The decentralized network that has been there from the beginning. NPR's member stations. This is Emily Kwong from NPR's Science Desk.
14: They are the eyes and the ears of their community. And there's no station that embodies that better than the station where I got my start, which is KCAW Sitka, known as Raven Radio by locals in Sitka, Alaska. Now, Sitka is a fairly rural Alaskan town. And one of the heartbeats of that town is the radio station. Working in a tiny town, I didn't know if a big story would ever come our way, one that would necessarily result in it airing on NPR. Until January 2018, a 7.9 earthquake had struck off the coast of Alaska in the middle of the night, and it prompted a tsunami warning for the entire state of Alaska and parts of Canada. So I'm like bleary-eyed, crawling out of bed, and I know two things. One, I have to get to high ground in case a giant wave is gonna come crashing over our island. Two, I have to start doing my job, which is to report the local news. And one of the people I spoke with that morning was Rachel Martin on Morning Edition. What happened when the alarm went off? Well, it's quite a violent way to wake up in Sitka, Alaska. We received a text message alert of some kind saying that there was a tsunami. And I was also comforted to tell her that the wave never came. But the level of caring and concern in Rachel Martin's voice, knowing that there were eyes on Sitka, that people outside of Sitka and Southeast Alaska were paying attention to us. And that kind of connection is something I won't forget. And it made NPR real to me.
0: Emily now works at NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C. as a reporter and co-host of the NPR science podcast Shortwave.
14: A show that's looking at science from a lens of equity. How has science and medicine historically failed to provide equal care for people of color? And how has that impacted them? And I think that look back and that kind of intelligence and care and thoughtfulness is unique to NPR. And as a company, we can really do that. We can take listeners on a journey of understanding how we got here as America, because we have the platform and the power and the ability and the time to research all of this and interview people who understand it.
0: Having the power and the platform means we can experiment with new shows, ask new questions and hear new voices.
13: This is Sydney Madden from NPR Music. I'm one of the co-hosts and reporters of Louder Than a Riot.
4: And I'm Rodney Carmichael, also of NPR Music, where I also co-host and co-write and report for Louder Than a Riot.
0: Louder Than a Riot is a podcast that looks at the interconnected rise of hip hop and mass incarceration.
4: With Louder Than a Riot, we really wanted to tell the story that we've lived, you know, as as you know two people from the hip hop culture of the hip hop culture um, who've been fans of it you know from day one and we knew that there was a story there that there hip-hop were voices there that you have never heard was. on NPR
8: hip hop is talking about what we live trying to live the American dream failing at the American dream being abused by the system and law enforcement and the government. Without those things, hip-hop wouldn't even exist.
13: It is very serendipitous that the rollout of this show came uh, on the dovetail of the summer we just lived through in 2020. But at the same time, the whole point of the show is that hip hop's been saying it for 40 years and so many people didn't listen and they just casually consume it but don't consider the deeper meaning and the meaning between the lines and between the lyrics
8: a lot of people aren't able to understand their purpose in my neighborhood because they are trying to survive i need i need milk i need bread damn it i just got a gas bill oh my god my lights is off Oh, my God. Now my lights is off. Now my car broke. How am I going to even think of anything else?
4: It's funny because I when I came to NPR and, you know, we would be in these big meetings and there would be talk about audience and and numbers and, you know, target audience and, and, and what the quintessential NPR audience looks like. A lot of times I heard that audience, I've heard it described in ways that didn't include me and that was always surprising to me because I've been a fan of NPR for 17 years and so i imagined um an NPR audience that was just as uh wide-ranging and and diverse in listenership as you know as as my own experience is and i would love to see us get to the point where we're not just creating specialty shows to go after new audience right like We need to be in in all of our, you know, main broadcast shows telling the kind of stories that we feel like aren't being heard or told enough on our bigger outlets.
13: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like don't wait to play catch up on something, you know, you can be a leader in, you know, something, you know, you have the talent and you have the resources and you have the drive and the vision to do.
4: And we shouldn't have to wait another 40 years to to tell people the story of what's happening in 2021. You know, let's, let's, let's start telling those stories right now. Right
0: now and in the years to come. As always, we'll continue to ask ourselves what we can do better, where we can improve and how we can innovate. NPR has worked for 50 years to get it right, to hear every voice and to connect with you. And we're grateful for the chance to do it all again tomorrow. 50 and Forward was produced by Kerry Thompson with production assistance from Aaron Slomsky-Pritz. Our editor is Kitty Isley. Our senior producer is Surya Mohammed, And the senior director of programming is Yolanda Sangwayi. Special thanks to Art Silverman, Neil Tivolt, Barry Gordimer, and Casa Overall. There are countless people we couldn't include who made NPR what it is today. And to them, we say thank you. To hear this show again and check out stories from the archives, please visit npr.org slash 50. And some final words from Susan Stamberg.
12: Hang on to that sense of mission and the idealism with which we began, because it's, it shows we're hurtling towards the next phase. We have passed through it, and there's going to be something beyond that too.
0: I'm Audie Cornish. You've been listening to 50 and Forward, an anniversary celebration of NPR.
1: WJFF Jeffersonville. You're listening to Radio Catskill.
6: This week on This American Life, Kara was pretty green when she decided at 17 that she wanted to be a stripper. Before her first shift, she went dress shopping.
10: It was a, a purple dress.
14: I got it from Macy's. Was it like floor length? Yeah, it was flowing. And I see all these girls and they're on like fish knives and clear heels.
6: Sex workers and laws that are supposed to protect them, but don't this week.
10: Saturday at 6 on Radio Catskill. Support comes from
0: the law office of John Ferrara in Monticello. Providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. John. Ferrara five five seven at gmail.com.
2: Support comes from the Vintage House on Main Street, Jeffersonville, featuring eclectic furnishings, clothing, antiques, records, and books in a charming 19th-century house. Vintage House.